Now on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being positive, how sure are you? At least an eight. Last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. I'm very sure that's the man who shot me. Throwing like a star in my vicinity, I opened my eyes to take a peek to find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. Welcome back to 15 Minute Film Fanatics, the show where Dan and I watch movies separately and then we get together to discuss them for the first time. So this week's pick is a Dan pick, but I'll set us up here. It's 2007's Zodiac, directed by David Fincher. Screenplay was written by James Vanderbilt based on uh, the, of course, the book by uh, Gray Smith, who's the main character in our in our movie here, Zodiac, which came out. Uh, Dan, you watch this movie randomly and then started texting me that I had to watch it because we had to do a podcast on it. So what what prompted that? Yeah, well, it was on it was on a, it was on the Criterion Channel, a whole new slew of movies called True Crime. And I thought to myself, I'd never seen that. I, I you know, it never got that much play. Let me. So I texted Mike, "Have you ever seen this?" And Mike's like, yeah, "It's it's okay, you know." So I, I watched it, and and the more I thought about it, the, the more I liked it. So it kind of grew on me over time, and. You know, I don't really want to debate like how good of a movie it is, but I just think it's at least interesting. It's at least worth the conversation. That's why I'm so glad we're talking about it today, because I was like, let's do an episode. Let's do an episode. Yeah, I Uh, stand by everything that I've said about David Fincher. So, of course, we covered seven on the podcast. um, And, you know, I think that that's kind of it's an early film for him, but it's also his masterpiece. But I will say, of course, the things that that does that movie does well, he does well here, too. But that doesn't mean they're similar movies. You would think that with a similar director and kind of similar subject matter, or at least in, in you know, someone on the hunt for the true identity of a serial killer, uh, that they would be similar movies, but they work in different ways. But the things that I like about them are the same. Yeah. And we'll talk about that as well, because I do think it's not, I mean, if you have to pick, I hate to vote, but I mean, if you had to vote, like, okay, if you can only pick one, seven's a better movie. But this is at least interesting for, for, for a lot of reasons that we'll get into about, because I think the movie is about, it's so interesting that the same guy that made Seven, which is so focused and leads you to this absolute point at the, at the end of the film with the box, here it's so much more sprawling, or it seems more sprawling, it seems more loose, but we'll talk about that in a second. The thing I loved about this, were well, two things I will say about my experience of seeing it cold. The first was that it would be another hard movie to recommend. We keep seeing movies like this. Um, uh, First, you have those murders in the beginning. And, you know, when, when how, by the way, parentheses, how about the Hurdy Gurdy Man song as the ultimate? And the Hurdy Gurdy Man. The soundtrack is incredible. Yeah, it's so terrifying. Um, after the second set of murders in the park where the, where, the, where the guy, the woman got hogtied and stabbed repeatedly, I was very close and I'm not squeamish, but I was really close to turning it off because I thought to myself, all right, I'm not going to watch every murder from the Zodiac killer and it's going to be empty. It's not like, it's not like the murders in seven where you're led more on this moral journey. And, and I'm like, all right, let me, let me just stay with it. And over time I realized, cause it's a long film. What those murders had done to me is they kind of sent shockwaves through me for the rest of the film, which is relatively tame. And 
And so I reversed my position. I went from like, oh my God, that's kind of gratuitous to like, wow, this movie is injecting me with some of the panic, you know, give me a taste of the panic that the people in San Francisco felt. And, and of course that comes back later when, when Jake Gyllenhaal gets the, the phone calls with the heavy breathing and all that panic starts to come back. So that was my first caveat. My second caveat about recommending it would be, you know, the viewer has to be really comfortable with ambiguity and a lack of resolution, right? Because think about it, we've done Knives Out and Diabolique and Silence of the Lambs and they all have like perfect endings or where things, things get tied up. But here, like you go into it knowing the guy's not going to get caught. And I don't mean now, like someone will be like, well, the true crime podcast and they have the DNA, blah, blah. I mean, like, and now I want to go back to what you said about Seven. This whole movie works on the tension between, um, you know, movie crimes and real crimes, right? We go into the movie knowing this thing's never going to be solved, but we get sucked in just like Jake Gyllenhaal's character. And David Fincher keeps teasing us and tricking us into thinking we're, we're getting somewhere. And I have my air quotes up here. Um, we get all this forward propulsion, like even to those on-screen titles that say what the date and the time was. And, and, and it looks like Dateline, but it keeps teasing us that way. So it does two things at once. And I think that's really interesting. The movie itself is very much about watching, as a lot of David, David Fincher's films are. And, and you could argue the best directors are always making movies about movie about watching. Movies. But that's, that's a little abstruse for this for this discussion, but uh, I almost, I almost feel like he tips his hand a little too much or there there's a, there's a moment that's kind of cute, but also horrific, which is that the former detective uh, can't sit through dirty Harry. If you remember that, that moment he get he gets up and leaves because it's, it's impossible to fictionalize something that you've lived through. And I think that that's, that really connects to the murders that you're talking about because it would lead you to believe that this is some kind of Hollywood snuff film in the first half an hour, which it's very much not, but it's about a different kind of horror. There's a, there's a different kind of horror movie where somebody becomes almost possessed with an evil spirit to the point that they drive everybody away. And it, the, the question is, is the nature of evil in violent acts that take 15, 20 minutes, or is it in violent acts that create evil that, that lasts 15, 20 years. And I think that those are very nicely juxtaposed and they're not juxtaposed in a cute way where they're right next to each other. They're juxtaposed in a very resonant way over a film that feels long because it spans so much space and time. Yeah, and it feels long. It's exhausting to, to go on this journey with them because you keep getting caught up in the moment. And like, you know, that's the whole, there's all these podcasts now uh, of, of amateurs you know, there's a podcast like, um, there are other podcasts out there, apparently. There's one called like Someone Knows Something. Somebody Knows Something. There's a lot of um, where, where the listeners are invited to be amateurs and the fun of being like an amateur sleuth. Um, but it's not an amateur sleuth in, like an Agatha Christie. Like Agatha Christie detectives, Poirot's a detective, but like Miss Marple's not a detective. She has a lot of detective stand-ins where just somebody with a lot of common sense like can, can put the pieces together. Here you can have all the common sense in the world, but you can't even get the, your head around the basic facts. Like that scene where Robert Downey Jr. says, well, no, he's only done, he's only murdered whatever, six people. He just wants attention for the other ones. And I'm like, well, they can't even figure out which ones the guy actually did, which goes down, which is why David Fincher, I think has different actors playing the, the Zodiac at different times in the film. So I think there's a great tension between them because you know, we say things all the time, like I forgot I was in the theater. I was carried away. Like you always know you're watching a movie and, and you form, you go into that movie with a whole bunch of expectations. And David Fincher knows every expectation you have and then he plays with them and he either satisfies it or denies it or does a little dance with them. And I think that that dance is what makes Zodiac so interesting. Well, there's a lot of play on the recollection of 
eyewitness, right? Which is that that'll take us to the ending. I'm sure yeah. we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll, that t- for the we'll ending, touch sure. on it, but I think part of that is because this is kind of a coy point now that maybe doesn't need to be made, but eyewitness testimony is of course a form of fiction, right? right. Where it's the least reliable it's, testimony. It's a, it's a form of fiction in which the, the person claiming historicity, uh, is the is the person fictionalizing it? It's gone through the filter of their own imagination, and so I, I think that that's uh, that kind of takes the filmic world off its kilter. We've I've watched a lot of bad movies personally. I won't speak for you that seek to dramatize a historical event, and ironically, Mark Ruffalo is actually in a lot of those movies, and they're really bad. I hate them. I hate them as a genre, and they seem to propagate. Uh, you know, the, the faster they all win Academy Awards, they make more of them. And I think that this is very, the very much the point is that this is not trying to be one of those films. Just today, I saw that Nicole Kidman is going to play Lucille Ball. <clears throat> and for me, the reason I, the reason those things make me uh, groan is because it's all about the look and it's all about the makeup. And like, she really looks like Lucy, doesn't she? Like, all right, okay, that's great. And, and, and uh, it's kind of funny how this takes, like, I don't know what, what, what Robert Graysmith looks like. I don't know what the Zodiac looks like, you know, but I mean, the movie does all those things to you without you having to say things like Daniel Day-Lewis was a very convincing Lincoln or Joaquin I, Phoenix was a really good Johnny Cash. But I think it can make you feel what it felt like. Yes. And that's, that goes a hundred percent back to my original point was the sense of unease I had is that there's no jump scares in this, but I tell you halfway through the movie, my daughter walked in the room and, and just said one innocent thing. And I was like, ah, like I jumped, I jumped out of my chair because I felt this sense of dread and unease. And, and I think the movie does that really, really well. I can definitely pick up on that with my moment. So we'll go to part two. Okay. So part two, of course, we like to talk about key moments or big scenes that kind of point back to the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, I might've stepped on your toes there. Uh, you can tell by my section. face, but that's okay. That's okay. There's plenty to talk about. So my moment was when Mark Ruffalo goes to see Dirty Harry and he walks out. Now, um, I, I, I felt exactly the same way. I'm like, is this a little too cute? Because, and I assume all the listeners of the show know what happens in the plot of Dirty Harry. Do you remember who the bad guy is in Dirty Harry? Uh, I don't remember what they call him, but you know, of course, he's a serial killer. Yes, that's targeting children. Name. Right, he's the Scorpio killer. The Scorpio and he's killer. modeled on the on the Zodiac killer. So remember, in Zodiac, um, the Zodiac killer says he's going to pick off kids as they come off a school bus. In Dirty Harry, of course, he hijacks one. So we get the whole thing. So in that movie, what's interesting is is when I was watching it, you start to automatically in your head juxtapose Dirty Harry, the film, and Zodiac. Right. So what's interesting is that in that movie, you don't get dead end leads and false starts and like inconclusive handwriting and and that you think you've nailed the guy and the boss comes in and says he's not your guy and like what do you mean he's not your guy you know none of that even comes into play and i thought well why not and the reason is of course because they have Clint Eastwood because Clint Eastwood knows who's good he knows who's bad he knows what's worth fighting for he knows when to throw your badge into San Francisco bay the great thing about zodiac i think is you get John Carroll Lynch who it took me a while to figure out. I'm like, oh yeah, he's he's Margie's husband in Fargo. You get John Carroll Lynch as the guy Arthur Lee Allen, who is is creepy as hell. Uh, you remember they go into his trailer and there's a squirrel in a cage. There's so squirrels good. everywhere. He was fired for child molestation, but they can't go all Clint Eastwood on him. Like they can't go Dirty Harry on him. 
And that makes for a very upsetting film experience. In real life, we want due process. Mark Ruffalo even says that. You have to have a thing called due process. But they can't go Clint Eastwood on them. And so it's not that simple. And then you think, well, what are some other crime tropes, right? It's not as simple as a Hitchcockian wrong man story. Because it could have became that. It could have been like, well, Arthur Lee Allen's a terrible guy. He's, he's awful. He's a creep. But he's the wrong guy. Right. You can't go that way either because he might be the right guy. Although you found out later he had a heart attack before they could interrogate him. The need didn't match. So the movie is as uneven as the story. And I think that all comes out that that Dirty Harry is such an even keeled story. It goes from A to B to C. There's a hero. There's um, he sees better than everybody else. Only he can get the job done. And then it's over. This, though, is a, is a big, sprawling, uneven mess. And I think it's interesting to contrast those two kind of movies. But I. No, I, I think you're you're spot on. But the um, the ambiguity is not just in the who. The ambiguity is the why. Right. right. In, that- in a Hitchcockian plot or in a Sherlock Holmes plot, you you know, it, it always, you know, the money leads back or yep. somebody was somebody spurned mistress 10 years ago. And that, you know, that's what it turned into or your uncle's trying to claim your inheritance. But in, in this movie, when you ask Qui Bono, nobody, nobody. Why? And that's- right. That, that's why that's why it's the poster for the most dangerous game. It's just for the hell of it. It's just for and the that, hell of it. That's what bothers everybody because that's the most plausible reason of all. We, yes. we sit there and we get, you know, we sit through all the Sherlock Holmes plots and we go, well, I've always wanted an inheritance, but, but I don't think I would actually stab. I'd think about stabbing somebody, but I don't think I would actually do it. The question as to why you'd bind two strangers and stab them to death for 25 minutes is just, you, f- you felt like it, you have to. And that's one of the things I wanted to say when we do the ending. It's so funny. We keep jumping ahead of ourselves. Was that? Yeah, exactly. Like, Mike, would you like to start a tontine? Like, we're not going to we're not going to do that. Well, you Sherlock Holmes fans out there know about the tontine. But when you watch seven the first time, you know, seven, okay, seven deadly sins, you kind of catch on as it goes on. When you watch any, when you watch Silence of the Lambs and, you know, well, is she a big fat person? And you, it's like, you don't really know the first time what's going on, but then you figure out what's going on with Buffalo Bill. Well, here you don't get any of that. Like, you don't know how he chooses victims. You don't even know who, who they are. Um, and, and, and that bothers us because we want to impose a movie narrative and a movie structure on something that doesn't let us. It's like the whiteness of the whale. Yeah, it's, it's exactly like that. So what's your moment? Uh, so my moment is when uh, he go, he so he's tracking down the movie poster lead, uh, Gray Smith. So he goes to the only guy who knows about the movie posters, you know, for, for more information. And he's talking about the handwriting. And these are the only handwriting samples that match. And the guy says, no, 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 no. I, I did all the movie posters. In fact, I think I got uh, the logs down in the basement. Why don't we go take a look? Again, there's no why in that scene for me, but there's, there's how. If you ask me how David Fincher works, if you watch that three and a half minute clip, First, the muted colors, the like, the, the, right, the whole every David Fincher movie looks increasingly like a, 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 a yellow square until he just makes a movie, which is a yellow square for 90 minutes. But, you know, that scene, that scene from what, 14 years ago now is it's a yellow square with two guys faces. And then something starts st- something starts to happen, which is, is as we pan back and forth and we cut from face to face, we linger on different faces while different people are talking. So what does that what does that do for the for the sound and the audio? It, it makes your ears perk up, right? It gets very quiet. It's raining outside. That, that's the most Fincher thing ever. You remember the rain with the yep. with the two coffees. Yep. It's a scene right out of seven. It's raining outside. They're isolated. They're alone. You have to listen very carefully to each person's voice while they're talking. And Jake Gyllenhaal says, not a lot of people 
have basements in California? And Vaughn says, I do. I do. And that's, that's how the scene, that's why, you know, there's no, there's no jump scares, but that's where the sense of unease comes from. We've bitched on the show before about scary movies where the protagonists are not scared. Right. And we, it, this is one scene where somebody slowly realizes that, that they might die tonight in the next couple of minutes, that the, that the thing that people have been warning them about, that you're going to push this too far. You know, you, you always assume I'm going to push it too far tomorrow. And Jake Gyllenhaal realizes that he's pushed it too far tonight and then the door won't open and then finally he runs and i think that there's a there's a very tactile quality like what the things that they try to control out of movies in the 90s and the 2000s the sound of footsteps the sounds of doors the sounds of clothes rustling fincher leaves them all right because because again it it enacts the intention and once it has the attention it does not release it and so those three and a half minutes feel like they take longer you i think if you took somebody at, just after they got out of, the, out, of, out of the movie and asked them, how long does that scene last? They would say 10 minutes, you know, at least two or three times longer because the experience of dread is very different than the experience of seeing that of people hacked up. That's like a, that's a Fincher scene. And I think it's kind of a window into his mind. So welcome back in part three, we'd like to talk about the ending or the title or other big takeaways. So Mike, uh, what was your take on the ending of this movie? I think it's a brilliant way to end because it both feels like the end, but of course there's no conclusion, right? The, the movie just stops because it's the closest we will ever get. And so what the movie is saying is that, that the scale at which time is going to be measured in this movie is until the amount of information that the people inside the movie has matches the amount of information as movie uh, people outside the movie has. And that's the, that's the moment at which the um, we reach information equilibrium. And so the movie just kind of pops out of existence, right? Cause the guy who gets shot makes a positive ID of a guy who's dead and the guy who's suspected to be the Zodiac killer. Um, but again, it's a very, it's a very quiet tactile scene. It's a, it's the sound of a briefcase opening. It's the sound of chairs getting pulled out. And so it sucks your attention in, in that very Fincherian way. Yeah. He's very good. He's very good at, at making you um, recoil in horror. Like he does with the first two sets of murders, but also absolutely you're eating out of his hand. If you've stuck it out that long in that movie, when, when he, when, when, when um, that guy, Mike, I think his name is Mike um, Magoo or Mag Maggio or something. When he walks back in, you are eating out of David Fincher's hand. And I love that. It, it, you're right. It's information equilibrium because you don't realize as you're, as you're watching this, you keep thinking like, what's the plot of this movie about? Like, what's it about? Right. Cause the movie's uneven. Like you think, okay, at first it's going to be about San Fran living in fear. The whole movie, I'm going to, everyone's going to be as afraid as I am in the beginning with the murders. Right. But then no, no it's going to be about um, Grace Smith and, and Robert Downey Jr. Forming this kind of odd couple, you know, the boy scout and the pill popper. And then that gives way to like Mark Ruffalo and Anthony Edwards as like the, like the, the cops in the seventies cop show who are going to crack this wide open. And then that gives way to like the solo grace with amateur stuff and like having his relationship break up and get to the point where the guy calls and breeds on the phone. And he just hangs up because he's just too, too, too obsessed with it. So the, it keeps changing what, what the movie's about. But at the end, I think what's brilliant is that it gets to the end. You're like, Oh, that's how you stop this movie. And you're right. It doesn't, it just stops. You have the guy from the first scene, the first murders, and he comes full back in circle at the end. And everything that's said in that very quiet scene with very innocuous language raises every issue of the film, right? Because the cop says, um, uh, 
Are you sure it's him? And he says, on a one to 10, remember what he says? About an eight. Yeah, at least an eight. eight. At least eight. So that's a good number for this film too. It's not a one. It's not a 10. It's at least an eight because there's no uncertainties, right? And then, and then he says, the last time I saw this face was July 4th, 1969. I'm very sure that's the man that shot me. And that's the last line of the movie. I'm very sure that that's the man that shot me. And you're, you're, you're okay, okay. And then the titles come on and you find out that Arthur Lee Allen had, they, they had a heart attack. And- I'll, I'll tell you one thing. I hate, I hate black screens with white text that explain like, like it's, um, it's the last scene of the Shawshank Redemption. And it's, and you know, it's like Morgan Freeman, but they didn't actually hire him to record the voiceover, um, you know, with the, with the explanatory text, this movie earned it. I don't think it's a, I, I, I think that seven's a better movie. I don't think it's Fincher's best, but I will say out of all the movies that go black with the, with the white letters to explain to you what happened, this movie really earns it. And it's almost like they can't, I, the movie's shown you what it can show you. It can give you a couple of blurbs and then even the blurbs go away. And that's all we know. Even the blurbs go away because you get two or I think three screens of blurbs because you find out like what happened, like how, how Robert Downey Jr.'s character died. And, and if you had to, you could sit there and watch like 30 screens of them, of all the other stuff they found since then, when the case was open and when it was closed and what amateurs had found since then. And then you get a couple screens and it says like, you know, assistant film editor. And you're like, okay. Like David Fincher's like, and that's what it, that's what it's like to deal with real life dread of evil. It's, it's entirely unknowable. It's without motive. It's without real face, right? It's it's without real face. I could give you seven faces and you point to the closest one. The cop, the cop tries not to lead him on. Just just because I show you faces doesn't doesn't mean you have to pick one out. You hear? But of course, he does pick one out. Uh, and it, it's it's as unknowable as the scene where Graysmith comes into the hardware store and he's staring right at, at Alan. And for thirty sec, like. The first, you can see the emotions pass, right? The first emotion is, do you need help with something? And the second emotion is, why are you looking at me? And the third emotion is, oh, I see. And the fourth emotion is, do something about it. And of course, he doesn't do anything because there's because there's nothing to do. Because what are you going to do? And of course, you you could. This is only what we're reading in. But but there's something beautiful about as audience members, we're all we all read the same sequence that I just mentioned. Uh, silently to ourselves, we all understand the same way, but of course, nothing's been said. Yes, and Fitcher knows he knows that he knows. He, I think that this film proves how well he understands what people go through when they sit in the dark and watch images on a screen. So, thanks for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about Zodiac. We really enjoyed talking about it. You could follow us on Twitter at one five and film. Email us at fifteen minute film at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what we should watch. We love the requests. Thanks for listening. And please, 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 if you have a chance, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. Um, review us wherever you get the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. See you next time. History is of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast.